Good morning, Familia. I am so glad uh, to be with you here this morning. My name is Brent Sickle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And I want to welcome you again for those of you who are worshiping with us here in person and those of you joining us online as well. Well, we just read our passage, right? A feast for 5,000. And it feels only right that during the week of Thanksgiving, our passage is about food. This past week, my wife Beth and I sat down with our kids uh, to let them help us create our Thanksgiving Day menu. It's our first Thanksgiving here in Chicago, and we thought it'd be fun to have them help shape uh, what our Thanksgiving meal is like as we're apart from family. And it was funny to hear them share their favorite foods that they wanted to include. Some of them wanted to include their green bean casseroles and, and their mashed potatoes. Uh, but it was also really funny to hear them think of the things they wanted to actually do without. And there's a, a bit of debate going on in our family as our kids are trying to overrule my wife and I on having turkey for Thanksgiving. Uh, they were trying to vote and saying that the kids have more votes for ham. And we're like, no, that's not Thanksgiving. And so we were enjoying this thing. And it, it probably as I talk about Thanksgiving, uh, there are many, maybe certain dishes that come to mind that are part of your family transitions or uh, traditions. And maybe you can already begin to smell the turkey and pumpkin pie. And there might even been a few of you that have already started cooking for Thanksgiving. Our text last week and our text this week both focus on meals. But what I want us to see here is this vast contrast we see between these two texts. The stark contrast between Herod's gruesome dinner party and the compassionate meal that Jesus provides for 5,000. Herod's party, as we saw last week, is characterized by great opulence, whereas Jesus' meal by mere bread the most basic of food staples. Herod's party is characterized by hatred, yet we see Jesus' meal is characterized by compassion. The host at Herod's party is a petty tyrant who's concerned about his own power and well-being, and yet the host at Jesus' meal is a compassionate savior whose concern is the well-being of those who have come to see him. Herod's party ends in death. Yet what I want us to see today is Jesus' meal sustains life. The contrast between these two kings could not be more deliberate or exhaustive and I believe Matthew wants us as his readers to notice this clear juxtaposition as we look at our passage today. You see, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of only two miracles that all four of the Gospels include in their text. The other being the resurrection of Jesus himself. And so this ought to speak to the importance of our passage today. This feeding is also reminiscent of Elijah's miracle in 2 Kings chapter 4. In that story, Elijah has only 20 barley loaves to feed 100 people. 
And similarly, when, his, when he orders his servant to distribute the bread, the servant asked, what should I set before these hundred people? Elijah affirms the promise that had been made to him that they will eat and they will have some left over. The miracle is, almost, is also reminiscent of, of the manna in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16. Like Moses, Jesus is crossed over to the water and to the wilderness. Like Moses, he's surrounded by hungry people. And yet he is required to feed them. The Gospel of John makes this linkage uh, quite clear. In the Gospel of John, Jesus follows up the feeding of the 5,000 with a discourse on the bread from heaven. But today we're looking at Matthew, and so I want us to focus on three themes that I see run throughout our story today. I want us to see that this is a story of compassion. I want us to see this is a story of challenge. And I want us to see this is a story of copious provision. Yes, I used alliteration, I'm a pastor. So a story of compassion, a story of challenge, and a story of copious provision. You with me? Good. Let's jump right in. We're looking at Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. A story of compassion. When Jesus heard what has happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. The scene opens up and Jesus is retreating. And Matthew doesn't spell out the full reason for Jesus' withdrawal or need for solitude. But what we can learn from the other gospel accounts is that there's a lot happening in Jesus' life. There's a lot going on. And it was a normal rhythm of Jesus for him to withdraw and to pray. And so we see here in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, he withdrew first to reflect. When Jesus heard what had happened, that is the death of John, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. He withdrew to reflect because Jesus needs to take time to reflect on the news of John's death. John was family. He had come to prepare the way for Jesus. He was a close friend and a trusted colleague. And even though Jesus can put John's death into the larger context of what he's doing, Jesus surely needs time alone to reflect, time to grieve, time to heal, and time to prepare for what he knows is coming, his own death. Jesus also withdrew to retreat. Luke in his account says this, in verse 9, but Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him, Jesus. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and they took with him, and, and he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Jesus knew that Herod was seeking him out. And so Jesus takes a short boat ride to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is controlled by Philip, Herod's brother. What I want us to see here is Jesus is not afraid. Jesus was not fearful of Herod, but he knew his time had not yet come. 
The third reason why Jesus withdrew is he withdrew to hear the reports. Mark 6 verse 30 says the same thing. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Just prior to all this, Jesus had sent out the 12 to minister. They were out teaching and, and calling people to repentance and performing miracles. And now they have come back and they are excited to share all of their experiences with Jesus. And so Jesus wants to gather them together and to hear from them. But lastly, we see that Jesus withdrew to rest. Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Then because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus says to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. Wow. Jesus' life is quite full. The fullness of ministry that both he and his disciples are experiencing and participating in, no wonder he is in need of some rest. Maybe we feel like this too, right? We get to the holiday season and all the things that are filling up and we're like, man, we just need time to rest. But as we walk through the story, we see it doesn't end there. Verse 13 continues on that as Jesus and his disciples travel across the Sea of Galilee to find a place of solitude, the crowds, in verse 13, hearing this, follow him on foot from the towns. The boat ride's going along. The people see Jesus take off. And because the Sea of Galilee rests in this bowl of this valley, they can watch the disciples rowing across the lake, follow them with their sight line, and run around the lake, and they actually beat Jesus to where he's going. They arrive at Jesus' intended destination for solitude and rest. And what Jesus, as he lands, walks into is a mess. But what is Jesus' response? Verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He had compassion. It wasn't just this awe. His heart was moved for the needs of the people, so much so that Jesus now says, come, let me care for you. I don't know if that would have been my response in that situation. It probably would not have. And how frustrating is it to, and when we need time to be alone and we're denied it. Jesus would have had good reason to be upset with the crowd for interrupting his solitude, interrupting his, his quiet time with his disciples, interrupting his time of prayer. But yet that's not what Jesus' response was. He had compassion on the crowd. Like I said, sometimes when my solitude and rest are interrupted, that is not my response. Maybe the same thing for you, right? Especially as a parent, doesn't it seem that every time you go to take a time of rest, it just so happens to be the time your children need you most? Right? Can I get an amen with that? Yeah. At nap time, right, I go to lay down to take a nap and, uh, Dad, Dad, I can't find my hat. 
okay, come in. It's on your head. <laughs> or maybe, maybe at bedtime, right? Mom, I need two dozen cupcakes for the bake sale at school tomorrow. At bedtime. Or my favorites, in the middle of the night, your child comes in. I can't sleep. Can I sleep with you? And your child crawls into your bed and proceeds to put their feet in the middle of your back or lay across your head. And we love our kids, but admittedly in those weary moments, it can be hard to show compassion. But we see here, though Jesus had been pursuing solitude, Jesus felt compassion when he saw the crowd. They were needy. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Many of them were sick, and so Jesus heals them and teaches them. So this first theme we see is the feeding of the 5,000 is a story of compassion, where the character of our compassionate king is revealed. This character reveals what we already know in Scripture. Back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Jesus sees our needs and has compassion on us. The second theme I want us to see today is this is a story of challenge. Right? Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He is healing them. He is teaching them. The day is wearing on. And the 12 disciples see that neither Jesus nor the crowds seem interested in bringing the day to a close. The hour is getting late. The place is remote. And they assume that Jesus is so caught up in ministry that he has failed to notice the fading sunlight. And so the disciples feel a responsibility to bring Jesus back to reality, to prompt him to act sensibly. And so they urge Jesus in verse 15, send the crowds away. Send them away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. This gives us insight into the disciples' view of the situation. Jesus has taken care of the crowds all throughout the day. Now these people must go off and care for themselves. Hasn't Jesus Jesus shown enough compassion for the day? Jesus hears what the disciples are suggesting, but rejects it in verse 16. He says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. This command in the original language actually uh, was, was quite forceful. You, you do it. Why do you come to me? And so in this moment, the disciples are challenged to address the problem. And it seems that Jesus gives no direction. They can't dismiss the people. And so they must face this challenge and solve it themselves. So the disciples do as they always do and state the obvious. Verse 17. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. The disciples emphasize what they don't have and not who they have. They see the problem and not the provider. 
You see, the disciples had been watching Jesus heal and perform miracles all day, yet they saw the hunger of the crowd as beyond the scope of the compassionate master. Just as an earlier generation doubted God in Psalm 78, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Now Jesus' disciples doubt his ability to feed the hungry crowd. Their self-assessment of the situation, though, is right on the mark. The disciples only have five loaves of bread and two fish, seven items, barely enough for a small family, and even less to a crowd. But Jesus was allowing the disciples to wrestle with this challenge because he wanted them to see that their plan and their supply was hopelessly inadequate. John in his gospel explicitly states this. He says, and Jesus asked this of them to test them. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he had planned to do all along. But he wanted to impress onto the disciples that they could do nothing by themselves. And they needed Jesus to intercede and act. This challenge to the disciples offers us a vital spiritual lesson there are only three options when we realize our own severe limitations and inadequacies. There are only three options when our plan and our supply is not nearly enough for our lives. The first is we can resort to hopeless thinking. We declare the situation hopeless. We, we, we usually result in inactivity or we despair on our part and, and we just let it be, God, I, I can't do it. There's no use in even trying. Maybe we try our own endeavors, right? Where we work and work, work frantically in our own power to solve the problem and maybe at the last moment try to include God to fix it. This just so speaks of the cultural wisdom of our day. Our culture shouts, you've got this, you're enough, and seeks to boost our own confidence and performance by promoting our own self-sufficiency. You see, we each desperately want to have what it takes to meet the demands of our dreams and daily responsibilities. As Christians, we acknowledge that this thinking displaces God from the proper place in our lives, but we're more influenced by the logic of self-sufficiency in our culture than we want to really admit. Think with me for a second. One of the largest sections of any library or bookstore nowadays is the self-help section, right? Right? Uh, you go there and you get those uh, guide to uh, wallpaper for dummies or guide to using Microsoft Word for dummies or, or how to fix uh, your house or, or how to fix your life or to plan or whatever it is. There's huge, vast sections of resources out there on self-help. Similarly, though, if we go to the Christian living section, sadly what we find is lots of books on self-help that have been covered 
with a Christian veneer. They've been dressed up with some Christian language and maybe a Bible verse or two to make it palatable. But in the end of the day, they continue to be merely self-help books that do not drive us to our compassionate Savior. You see, our culture of self-sufficiency blinds us to God's provision and presence in our lives. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 says it this way, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in salt lands where no one lives. But verse 7, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They are like a tree planted by the waters. It sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in years of drought and never fails to bear fruit. What a lesson for us to learn here. That when we tend to think that we can do at least something, or at worst, all we need is a little help from Jesus, we need to understand our own inadequacy. We need to remember what Martin Luther said when he was reflecting on our nothingness. He said this, Our nothing really is nothing and not a little something. Our nothing really is nothing and not a little something. So what should be our proper response to our own inadequacy? And we see our response should be one of humble trust. Where we trust the Lord to work. Because just as Jesus had compassion on the crowd and their needs before, why would he not compassionately meet our needs now? The feeding of the 5,000 is a story of challenge. Because Jesus is challenging us to be fully dependent on him for everything. A story of compassion, a story of challenge. The last theme I want us to see is that this is a story of copious provision. Look with me at verses 18 and 19 here. When Jesus hears the disciples' answers, he says this, Bring them here to me. And he directs the people to sit down on the grass. You see, in the disciples' hands, five loaves and two fish are not very much. But there are other hands here. Jesus' hands. And if Jesus can touch a leper to make him whole, perhaps he can make something of this meager meal. This is a bold move for Jesus as well. As he raises the expectation, he sets the crowd down to watch and all eyes are focused on him to see what he will do next. And in verse 19, he takes the five loaves and two fish, looks up to heaven, he gives thanks and he breaks them. He gives them to the disciples and the disciples continue to give them to the people till all are fed. 
Jesus acts here in this moment to meet the needs of the crowd as the disciples distribute it. We see in verse 20, it says, they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. What I want you to understand here is that to be satisfied means to be completely filled. Jesus uses the same word earlier in his promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled to full satisfaction. And so we see the crowds not only ate, but they ate their fill and they had more left over than when they began. Church, our inadequacy is meant to direct us to the sufficiency and abundance of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what John means in John 15, 5. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. God wants us to bear fruit, indeed much fruit, and fruit that will last. But this only takes place if we are drawing on the resources of Jesus, our Savior. And so it's right for us to ask at this point these questions. Have you come to Jesus to meet your needs? Have you found Jesus to be sufficient for everything you need spiritually in your life? And you come to him now on a regular basis expecting him to satisfy all that you need? Or are you only looking for Jesus at the last moment? If you've come to Jesus, then I'm sure that you have found that not only are you satisfied, but there's an abundance left over. The feeding of the 5,000 is a story of compassion. The feeding of the 5,000 is a story of challenge. And the feeding of the 5,000 is a story of this copious provision in which Christ meets our needs. In which God in his providence meets a seemingly impossible need with full sufficiency and abundance through Jesus. But this story is not meant to turn our attention to the miracle of leftovers. For the gospel turns our attention not to the bread, but to Jesus as the bread of life, who is the provision long ago in our abundance for life today. Paul says this in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. God in his providence took compassion on us. In his love sent Jesus to take our place and bear the punishment for our sins. God also reminds us of our inability to save ourselves from our sin, that we are dead in our sins. But we have provision through Jesus. Colossians 2.13, But when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. 
and that God's provision through Jesus is not only just sufficient, it is abundant. Jesus says this in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, to the full satisfaction. Jesus today is our full, sufficient, and abundant provision for salvation. Just as you heard earlier from the baptism testimonies, you can experience that provision today as well. All you need to do is place your faith and trust in the saving work of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our compassionate Savior. If this is maybe the first time you've heard about that and you're thinking about it or have questions, I want to encourage you, uh, grab one of our pastors or staff before you leave today. We would love to talk with you and answer those questions about what it means to have Jesus as your Savior. And for the rest of us as a church, I want us to think of these things this week. As we approach the Thanksgiving table and we gather around with family and friends, I want us to be thinking about the compassionate King, Jesus that both he is our provider of our food and our daily needs, but also our provision of salvation for our souls. And will we give him thanks for that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. It's a story many of us know or have heard of, but speaks to your character. God, you are a compassionate God, and Jesus is our compassionate king, and he sees our need. Our deepest need is one of spiritual depravity and our sinfulness. Lord, help us to see our need for you each day, that we don't just need a little of you. We need all of you to fill us to full and complete satisfaction. And then and only then can we experience your sufficiency and abundance for our lives. Lord, this week as we give thanks